kind of stole my intro there. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. But would you guys pray with me real quick, uh, just as I start? Father, we just thank you so much for this time where we can come and learn from your word. Father, I pray that we would desire you more through this experience today, that you would meet us here today. Father, thank you for your blessings that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Kevin said, I am Jason Webster. I am on staff here for seven more days. Um, it's been a really good year here at Restoration Church. I've enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I've loved what I did. Uh, if, if you don't know what I did, I, I organized all the volunteers. Uh, so if you've ever volunteered here, I was the one who helped set your schedule, make sure uh, if you're gone, I'll, I'll find a replacement for you and all that good jazz. And then essentially whatever else Kevin tells me to do um, was my job. Um, <clears throat> A little bit about me, I graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago in 2016, and then I came straight to being on staff here. Uh, I love anything outdoors, I love biking, I love to hike, uh, and I love my wife. We've been married for two years, since June, um, and it's just been a total blessing to be married to her. For for any of those of you who are married, um, it's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, especially at first, like, it's kind of like this conversion experience where, like, you're single, and then you convert to being married. And, and it's, just, it's just different and weird. And my situation was really weird because I got married uh, before my senior year at college. And so I, I went back to Chicago with this life already set up as a single person, but now I'm coming back as married. And so it was just completely different. See, and the thing was, is I had this tendency to act as if I was still single because I was around the same friends that I was when I was single, and I had the same classes and the same teachers, and the whole scenario was the same as before I was married, and so I, I just wanted to go hang out with my friends. I wanted to do the things I did while I was single, but I couldn't do that anymore because I was married. See, I, I brought my wife halfway across the country uh, in order to be with me, and then my, 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 my reaction, my desire was to go do the things I did before. And so, being a married person, being a husband, I, I couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't act as if I was single, because I was a husband. And see, being a husband isn't just a title, it's really an occupation. It takes a lot of time. There's things involved in being a husband. See, I couldn't act as a single person now that I was married. Last week... Dan Hayes told us that Peter showed us in the text that we are a chosen holy race. We as Christians are a chosen holy race. But what does that look like in our lives? What does that mean to be a chosen holy race? I mean, this means we're we're in a different boat than non-Christians. We can't just act like we did before our conversion. And see, Christianity as well is not just a title. It is an occupation. It is something we do. It is something we are called to. There is responsibilities involved in being a Christian. So what Peter says today, the question he answers is, what are the implications of being a chosen holy race? What are the implications of being a chosen holy race? If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. So today, Peter is going to tell us what we are to do, why we are to do it, and how we are supposed to accomplish that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 
He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. So before he gets into these exhortations of the implications of being a Christian, he wants us to make sure we understand the context. So he starts by saying, beloved. You are loved. And he wants them to know, with everything I'm about to say, with everything that, that I'm saying, maybe it might be kind of hard to understand, just know that I love you. Not only by me, but also by God. I mean, church, this is our standing in Christ. We are loved by God. Isn't that amazing? But he doesn't just stop there. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I mean, what do you think of when you think of sojourner and exile? Maybe someone who, who just doesn't uh, have a house, someone who, who's wandering the streets, uh, camping out maybe. Uh, but, but there's more to that there. These are people who, who are not citizens. They don't have the rights of citizens. I mean, think of living in America when you're not a citizen. How do people react to you? How do people respond to you if you are not a citizen? They don't want you here. They're mean to you. They don't care about you as if you were a citizen. So this is the situation that they were in. That they didn't have the rights, but they wanted to fit in. And so Peter isn't just calling them, yeah, you guys are exiles, you know. He's not just agreeing with that. He's saying, actually, no, you guys are exiles. You don't belong here. You don't belong to this earth. In fact, your citizenship is in heaven. So he's not just agreeing and saying with the rest of the state that, yeah, you guys are exiles. He's, he's emphatically telling them, no, this is your position now as a Christian. You are exiles and sojourners in this land. But they wanted to fit in. I mean, anyone who's gone to high school knows you want to fit in. I mean, even our society says that we desire to fit in with the society around us. So the same people here that Peter's writing to you, they had this pressure to conform. But Peter wanted to make sure they know that their position has changed. See, Colossians 1.21 says that at once you were alienated from God doing evil deeds. But now Peter is saying, no, no, you're now alienated from doing those evil deeds and you belong to God. We belong to God. Our position has changed. But just because we're aliens here doesn't mean that we don't have responsibilities. See, last week uh, we, we read that our responsibility is to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's what we're called to do. So how do we do that? How do we accomplish that? What are the implications of being able to do that? Peter's going to give us uh, three scenarios here of what we are to do, and it's all under the category of honorable living. See, first he says, we are to live honorable lives. We are to live honorable lives. Starting in verse 11, he says, we are to live honorably in our personal lives. We are to live honorably in our personal lives. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage war against your soul. See, this may involve other people, but it is our passions of the flesh. It is our desires. So this has to do with our personal life, how we um, conflict with our old self, how we deal with our old self. Another way to put it is have good character. D.L. Moody said that character is what you are in the dark. So even if no one's looking, how are you going to act? He says, have good character. He says, we are to abstain or hold back from the passions of the flesh. And the passions of the flesh are really just anything that goes against the Spirit, anything that our old life wants to do that the Spirit tells us not to do. So this, this certainly implies sexual things. There's certainly uh, a dealing with the flesh. There's going to be a dealing with sexual things. So looking at things online that we know we're not supposed to. Or maybe with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé. When it gets late, it, it's hard to control the passions of the flesh. So how do, we, how do we deal with this? How do we abstain with it? Well, it's best to abstain from the situation. See, if we set boundaries up ahead of time it's easier to deal with these things maybe you set a boundary of well we're not going to be alone at home we're not going to do that we're we're not going to hang out past 10 o'clock at night so the passions of the flesh don't overcome the spirit's voice in our lives now boundaries aren't necessarily something that the bible sets up but something of our personal convictions that allows us to follow what the bible does say because the bible doesn't cover everything But it is definitely not limited to sexual things. Passions of the flesh could include addiction to drugs and alcohol, a desire for money, success, and fame. Are you going to cheat at work to get higher up? Are you going to take credit for someone else's work in order to have more success? These are the passions of the flesh. These are the things that battle against our spirit. See, the devil wants us to listen to these passions. He desires for us to listen to these things because when we listen to the passions of the flesh, we have to ignore the spirit. They are at battle with each other. That's what he's saying. There's a contrast between the spirit, the soul, and the flesh. And so when we listen to the flesh, we are denying, we are ignoring the spirit. This is truly a spiritual battle in our personal lives. When he talks about waging war, well, this isn't just one battle. I mean, could you imagine after the first battle of World War II that they're like, okay, there's nothing else to do. We did it. No. There's many more battles to come. They knew that this was an everyday fight. This is not just one battle. It is waging war. These are our everyday choices, day in and day out. Are we going to represent Christ? Are we going to listen to the Spirit? Are we going to fall to the voice of the flesh? So we are to live honorably in our personal lives. But he doesn't just stop there. He continues. He says that we we also have to live honorably in our public lives. We have to live honorably in our public lives. Read verse 12 with me. 
says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here specifically in our, in our public lives, he's saying uh, we are to act honorably around non-Christians. That's what Gentiles mean. Gentiles means those who are not of the faith. And so Peter is actually kind of uh, assuming something that we might miss if we pass over this too fast. He's actually assuming that we're interacting with non-Christians. He's not just uh, asking, I mean, how could we be honorable around him if we don't interact with them? And so he's assuming that we're actually interacting with them. And I know as Christians, it's really, really easy to get involved with the church, hang out with your small group, have parties where only church people are at. But see, that's not what he's wanting us to do here. He knows we can act honorably around the church. He knows we can do that. I mean, it's easy to have a spiritual conversation with your pastor. It's easy to say no to drugs when you're walking with your life group. But are you going to act the same way when you're around non-Christians? Are you going to act the same way that you would in church when you're outside the church after Sunday, on Monday, Tuesday? That's what he's getting at. He wants to make sure that we're not being hypocrites and only acting as the church around the church. See, honorable means deserving respect, being proper, not deserving blame or criticism. So first of all, this means that we're to live proper lives. We're to live proper lives. We are supposed to be seen as people who are bettering society. Maybe this simply means that you keep your lawn up. You, you keep your house painted so that as people drive by your neighborhood, they're like, wow, this is a nice place. We're bettering society. Maybe this means that you're on the school board at your local elementary school. I mean, how important is it to have a Christian voice in our children's education? Maybe as our church does, we have a softball team. Our softball team goes out in the city league instead of the church league and plays against non-Christians. So other softball teams can look at us and say, they are from a church. They are respectful. They, they can see how we interact with non-Christians and say, yeah, they're respectable people. As we've talked about here at Restoration before, we seek the welfare of the city. But we can't just stop here. We can't just stop at living a proper life because non-Christians can do that. They can act proper. They can better their neighborhood, better their society. We have to live as Christians on top of that. We have to act like Christians. I mean, we are to show the world what it means to be a holy people. We are the ones who are out there showing the world what it is like to be a people of God. And this means we need to have a joy about us. We need to have a grace in our response to situations. We need to be acting as the hands and feet of Christ above and beyond living proper lives. And we also have to hold to our convictions. You know, teenagers, when you get invited to go hang out with the cool kids at school, but you know they're not going to be doing anything good, are you just going to say, yeah, I guess I'll go because everyone else is going? Or are you going to say, no, I... I know you guys aren't really going to be doing anything good, so I don't want to go. I have higher values than that. Adults, when, when your non-Christian friends recommend a new Netflix show to you, oh yeah, this show is so awesome, but you know it's going to be crude. Do you watch it just because, oh, that's what everyone else is doing? 
Or do you say, no, I know what that show's about, and I don't stand for what they're saying. I have higher values than that. And are you going to decide to fall in and conform? Or will you say, no, I have higher standards. I am a Christian. I am a holy child of God. See, we want to fit in. and We don't want to be made fun of. But that's not the point. See, we desire to fit in and have it all be holly jolly. But as he says later in verse 12, he says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. See, the first thing we notice is not if they speak against you as evildoers, if they slander against you, but when. It's when it happens. It's going to happen. If you are a Christian, if you are living out your Christian faith, it is going to happen. You will be slandered by non-Christians. That is just a part of the call. It is a high, heavy call. But that is a part of our life. But the good news is is that's not where the verse ends. It doesn't just end with this, them continually slandering us. It ends with the glory of God. And he says they will glorify God. They are going to be the ones who are glorifying God. See, they're going to slander us, but it's how we respond to that slander. How do we respond when they call us names and make fun of us? At some point, they're going to realize we can't slander them because there's nothing wrong with their life. They are following God. They are doing good in the society. They have these good standards. And they're going to be unable to make fun of us. But this can only happen if we live a consistent Christian life. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, so a whole bunch of old people a long time ago got together and said, what do we exist for? And, and, and so they came together and said, okay, this is the chief end of man. We are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So first of all, our, our chief purpose as humanity, as Christians, is to glorify God, whatever that takes. And secondly, it, as it says, it, it should be enjoyable. Christianity is enjoyable. Christianity is something that, that, that people like, that people desire when they see it actually happening correctly. So we are to glorify God in everything that we do. This is our purpose. And Peter is saying, if we live honorable lives... If, if we, we, we react to their slander by doing good, they're going to glorify God. And that is our objective. And so if, you, if you've ever wondered, oh, am I, am I having the most effective witness? Well, Peter's telling us right now. If you respond honorably, if you stand up for what you believe in in Christ, at some point, God is going to get the glory. That is what we are called to do as Christians. We are to live honorably in our public lives. But he goes a step further in verses 13 and 14 with our public lives. Read with me 13 and 14. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor supreme or governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So he's saying we are to live honorably in submission to authority. Live honorably in submission to authority. 
See, for me, this kind of comes naturally. I've always had this fear of authority. I never got in trouble at school. I've never gotten a speeding ticket uh, yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I always had this natural fear of authority. I, de- I desired to follow the rules, to fit in, uh, make sure I wasn't doing anything wrong. But I know this isn't everyone's natural instinct. We have those natural rebels, uh, those who desire uh, to, to break away from that. And, and obviously... The, the Christians that he's writing to have this problem because he's writing to them about it. So these people, they, they saw it differently. And part of this was because these are the authorities that are persecuting them. These are the people who are, who are wrongly accusing them of doing evil and beating them. And so they say, well, why do we have to listen to them? Why do we have to listen to them when they act like this to us? And there's also uh, an idea going around that, well, as Peter said, uh, we, are, we are Christians. We are exiles in this world. And so, well, we're actually above that authority. We don't have to listen to them because we belong to God and we belong in heaven, not here. And so there's this idea that, oh, we don't have to listen to them. But that's not what Peter's saying. He says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's glory, listen to the authorities. And this is summed up really well in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. Um, Essentially, it says this. Paul's writing, and he's like, actually, um, God's the one who created that position of authority. God created that position, and actually, he's the one who sets the people in that position. He's the one who places them there. And so if we go against the authority, we're actually going against God. I mean, you see where he's going? God has set up that place of authority. He has created that position, and he has set that person there. So to go against that person is to go against God. I mean, does that change your view of authority? God has placed them there, and this could be hard. I mean, God placed Trump as our president. He placed Obama as our president. He placed Bush and Clinton and the other Bush. He has placed them all there. And this can be hard because as a politically run society, we can instantly disagree with everything that they say. But God put them there. God has put them there, and he put them there in his sovereignty. And so we are to trust God's sovereignty by submitting to the authority he has placed. Now, is this necessarily a hard, fast rule? I mean, what about if the government or these authorities tell us, well, you can't believe in God anymore? Well, in Acts chapter 9, verse, or Acts chapter 4, verse 19, uh, they kind of go over this and say, well, actually, we're going to listen to God above man if you're going to try to tell us to not obey God. We have to listen to God first. But if it's not contradicting with what God tells us to do, we're supposed to listen to authority. This is part of the Christian life. This is what God has called us to do. So these are the three areas that we live honorably as a chosen people. We do it in our personal lives. We have good character. We do it in our public lives. And he specifically says around non-Christians... And under authority. But why?
Why does he say this? Why has he put these words here? Maybe growing up, you, your parents had you do kind of strange things. You didn't really know why we're doing it like this. Maybe they just had weird rules that you didn't understand. And so I, I remember growing up and I, my friend John, I'd love to hang out with him. We'd hang out like every weekend if we could. And so I'd try and catch my mom at a good time and be like, Hey, mom, can I uh, hang out with John this weekend? No. Why not? Because I said so. And those famous words, because I said so. And there's nothing you can do to come back at that. Because I said so. Mom said it. It's final. And so Peter kind of comes up with the same thing here, the same kind of line of idea. In verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, because I said so. And as Christians, that right there is enough. That right there is all we need to hear. If God said so, we do it. But in this case, which is nice, he doesn't stop there. He actually continues in verse 15. And says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, putting to silence the ignorance of fools, I mean, we don't really talk like that. Mm, I shall put to silence the ignorance of fools this afternoon. We don't, I mean, we don't talk like that anymore. And, and so I'll translate this, uh, not straight from the Greek in, in modern English. That'll shut them up. Uh, essentially, that's what he's saying. This is going to shut them up. This is going to close their mouths, but this is not a harsh, cold shutting them up. This is shutting them up because we respect them. Because we've shown them love. Because when they saw our work ethic, there was nothing they could complain about. When they saw us as a waiter and we respected them, they saw nothing to complain about. When they made fun of us for being a Christian, next time we saw them, we bought them coffee. I mean, how are they going to respond to that? That's going to close their mouths. That's going to close the slander off because all they can see is us doing good when they slander us. So doing good is God's will because it puts Christians in a good light to non-Christians. It makes Christianity, it makes God attractive. So that's why he sets it up like this. But see, uh, their situation was a little different story of Tertullian. He was a uh, prominent church historian who lived in the second century AD. And this is what he said about the persecution. This is a quote. If the Tiber overflows and the Nile doesn't, if there is a drought or an earthquake, a famine or a pestilence, at once the cry goes up, the Christians to the lions. They blamed them because they didn't like them. Not because of something they had actually done, but just they had to blame someone and they don't like the Christians. And so, oh, something doesn't happen good with our crops. Okay, let's kill the Christians. I mean, this is more than mocking. This was a death for being a Christian. And so for, for a couple hundred years, this was the life of the people that, that Peter was talking to, but it didn't end like that. The persecution lasted until early 4th century when a guy named Galerius who persecuted the Christians, his entire life became ill. And then he made this decree. 
in return for our letting them become Christians, letting them be Christians, they will be required to pray to their God for us, for the public good, and for themselves. So do you see what happened here? Someone who persecuted them their whole life, at the end of his life, saw they're only doing good. So I'm going to require them, okay, we're going to let them be Christians now, I'll end the persecution, but they have to pray for us. They have to pray for the good of our society. I mean, this is a complete 180 turn. It was only two years later that Constantine conquered the western half of the Roman Empire and made Christianity the top religion. I can only imagine that came because of the prayer that was requested of them. They lived out their lives under the persecution. Now, that's probably not going to be our reality. But what can we do? We can pick one person. We can pick one coworker, one classmate, a family member, a neighbor. And we can share the good news with them. We can spend extra time with them. We can talk favorably with them. And so when it comes time that we share the gospel with them, when, they, when, we, when we tell them what Christianity is all about, they're going to have nothing bad to say about us. They're going to be able to look at our lives and say, they've been an honorable person. They have respect for our society. And they're going to be more willing to want what you have as a Christian because they see your life being played out. Peter's not quite done. He has has one more thing to cover here. Because how you do what you do is important. I mean, you can say, yeah, I'm going to go build a car engine. Well, how are you going to do that? I don't know, put some pieces together. I mean, that's going to greatly change the outcome of what you do if you don't know how to do it. And so Peter here, he's going to tell us how we are to accomplish what we are to do. So read verse 16 with me. He says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I mean, this kind of sounds funny, right? I mean, we are to, to, to use our freedom to become a servant. I mean, it's like completely an oxymoron. We have to be free in order to be a slave. But that's what he calls us to. He says, we are to do it as free servants. We are to do it as free servants. I mean, this is the only way it can really be accomplished, though. I mean, this is how we are supposed to do what he calls us to. We can only do it if we're devoted to Christ. I mean, if we're not devoted to Christ, then the persecution is not worth it. How we look in front of non-Christians isn't worth it. Because the only hope that we have is in Christ. I mean, not, not to spoil the end of the book here for you, uh, but the whole basis is out of First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, Christ himself is going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. That is the hope. That is what everything builds around, is that Christ is going to do this. The the slander will end. The persecution will end. And Christ himself is going to establish us. 
That's what we have to look forward to. But that only happens if we're devoted to Christ. So we have to use our freedom to cling to Christ and not to sin. I mean, this hope is only found in salvation. This is what Christianity is. This is the gospel. See, Romans 3 tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. Nobody. Absolutely nobody seeks God. Why? Because we can't. Because we can't. Romans 6 says that we are slaves to sin. And if we're a slave to sin, we cannot serve God. We cannot seek God. John 6, tells us that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him until he reveals himself to us. So it is only through Christ revealed to us that we can even know who Christ is. Romans 6, 18. It says that after having been set free from sin, once we believe in the work of Christ on the cross, we are set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. See, these are the only two options. You're either a slave to sin, or you're free in Christ, and you are a slave to righteousness to God. Those are the two options. There's no in-between. Slave to sin, or slave to God. So, so Peter's calling us, live as if you are free in Christ. Don't live as if you're still a slave to sin. Live in the freedom of Christ. He's saying, don't abuse the precious God, blood of God. See, Romans 6.2 tells us, Peter, he's kind of doing these rhetorical questions. He says, shall we sin that grace may abound? Shall we sin so that we can have more grace? Or a couple of verses later, he says, are we to sin because we are under grace and not the law? And see, this is talking about, as what we believe here, the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And so we, we believe this. Okay, Jesus has saved us. So there's nothing that can separate us from Christ. And so some people see this and say, Oh, well, I, I guess I'm saved forever, so now I can go sin again. I mean, there's nothing I can do to become unsaved, so I can just do whatever I want and it'll be okay. No, that's taking advantage of the blood of Christ. We are not called to do that. Do you see Christ's sacrifice? Is a freedom to sin or a freedom not to have to sin? Do you see Christ's sacrifice as a freedom to sin or a freedom not to have to sin? See, we have been set free from sin. We have the ability to cling to Christ. And that's the attractiveness of Christianity. We are not a slave to sin. We don't have to do those things anymore. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what Christianity is all about. What Christ has done for us means we don't have to live that old life anymore. We have been set free to serve Christ. So Peter, wanting to make sure that we get it, he adds verse 17, saying, okay, if if you haven't heard anything I've said yet, if you've just been drawn a blank, listen to this. Verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I mean, this, this is essentially him summing everything up. If, if you didn't get anything, do this. This is your application. 
if you're looking for something to do, just read verse 17. It sums up everything that he's said so far. This is living as a holy people. But this is only done by accepting the freedom that has been given to us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We are to use that freedom to cling to him. So to sum everything up, what are the implications? What are the implications of being a chosen holy race? Well, we're to live honorably. Live honorably in our personal lives, around non-Christians, and submit to authority because this is the will of God because he has set this up this way. He has put those people in those positions to lead us. And if they're not contradicting him, we are to follow them. And this is his will because he has designed it as this is the best way for God to get glory. Us living holy lives in order to show the world what it is like to be holy. But it can only be done if we cling to Christ in the freedom that he has given us. It's the only way it can be done. We have to cling to Christ. See, as I said before, Christianity is not a title. It's an occupation. Things are to be done. God is to get glory. How are you going to do that in your life? Let's pray.